Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It's a great day for a podcast. Once again, here he is, John Oakley. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. Hang on. Come on. I've got to be honest. Uh, the prime minister can't be happy about the ruling that came down from the federal court yesterday. With the Emergencies Act, it was deemed to be uh, unjustified. In fact, a violation of charter rights. This according to the Justice Mosley. However, uh, you know, the commissioner who led the inquiry beforehand, uh, this is Paul Rouleau, said otherwise. So uh, here we are. Now the feds are planning to appeal the decision to the highest court in the land, I guess. I continue to be puzzled. Goes without saying. (laughs) Is that a thought bubble or uh, anyway? Yeah, there's much to unpack. But that decision yesterday uh, is, you know, uh, a shifting of the tectonic plates uh, when it means that the feds got it wrong and did illegal things. And nobody knows that better than B.J. Dichter, truck driver, podcaster, uh, one of the faces of the Freedom Convoy. His book is Honking for Freedom, the trucker convoy that gave us hope. B.J., good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. Good to talk to you. How are you? I'm great. How about you? I mean, after yesterday's ruling, I mean, what do you feel, vindicated, or uh, what do you make of it? I mean, from my perspective, I was never uh, entirely worried over the long term. The short term, yes, uh, but over the long term, we've been proven to be right for just about everything. Um, You know, I am vaccinated, so I'm not anti-vax, but, you know, there were concerns around quickly rolling out this uh, medication, and that might have had some prolonged effects. We don't know. Uh, I also believed that the government was violating, violating constitutional right and just the basic premises of British common law, where all of us, we had all of our accounts frozen. And when they said they violated the Charter of Freedoms and Rights, they violated it in the, in the act of freezing our bank accounts. And it wasn't just bank accounts. It was bank accounts, credit cards, lines of credit, corporate lines. We couldn't do anything. In the modern age, the government was trying to kill us. It's the equivalent of being banished from the town center during the Middle Ages. That's what the government was doing. Again, Benjamin Dichter is with us, B.J. Dichter, uh, truck driver, podcaster, and he's got a book out called Honking for Freedom, the Trucker Convoy that Gave Us Hope. Uh, so now, uh, in a, a retrospective analysis of sorts, uh, I think a lot of people have caught into the idea that uh, this was overreach and then some, even maybe some people who were, you know, uh, had their lives disrupted in uh, Ottawa proper, uh, because there's a bigger issue at play here and the constitutional grounds and rights and everything. What does that make you feel about, uh, the government, government overreach, or even the justice system? I mean, you don't have to convince me to be more libertarian and believe that government should be a little bit, sh- a little bit smaller in its scope. But you know, what's interesting. One of the people I become friends over this period of time is cartoonist Scott Adams. And as Scott Adams likes to say, and I I repeat this frequently, it takes one to five years for the truth about any political event to come out. We're two years into it. 
And what's interesting is the past year, I focused a lot of my attention, despite the prime minister calling me, you know, racist, uh, a white supremacist, I'm Jewish, by the way, and a right winger, all that sort of stuff. I spent the past year interacting with and communicating with and meeting with people who are liberal, who didn't understand the convoy. They didn't really have the right concept of what was going on because of the poor reporting on it. And maybe because there was some collusion with the government. I don't know. But it just wasn't accurately reported. And one of the things that's interesting that I haven't spoken about on legacy, uh, on legacy or traditional media is during the convoy, I was speaking through a conduit to 30-plus liberal MPs, very important liberal MPs, who told me they were forming a coalition, they've had enough, they saw the Parti Québécois breathing down their neck in Quebec. They want to get off the clown, sh- the clown world train and get back to being normal, centrist liberals. And they were starting to form um, an unofficial coalition confidence vote within the Liberal caucus. That's why he called the Emergency Measures Act. BJ, where do you think the Prime Minister was taking his cues here? Uh, I mean, was he unilaterally coming up with this stuff uh, in consultation with uh, other authority figures, quasi-authority figures? Where was he taking his cues? Well, one of the biggest, uh, the worst-kept secrets in on Parliament Hill, even I know, having been a candidate in the past, is that Trudeau doesn't make the decisions. He's the relationships manager. Remember, he let that slip when he uh, shortly after he was elected. And, you know, I've since met with a couple of former Liberal Party cabinet members prior to Trudeau, you know, Martin Kretchen-era liberals, the type of liberals that I could get along with sort of thing. And what they've indicated to me is there's nothing left of the Trudeau Liberal Party. There's 20 people in PMO. Everybody's afraid of them because they're maniacs. And everybody is just waiting for the time to pass that they finally lose, lose an election. And then you're going to see the Liberal Party go to war with itself to try to come back to becoming a centrist liberal party. And I think that's the trajectory we're on. And that's why I'm actually quite optimistic about the future for Canada. B.J. Dichter with us, truck driver, podcaster, uh, one of the faces of the Freedom Convoy. His book is Honking for Freedom, the trucker convoy that gave us hope. You cited how you were accused of uh, being a racist. I mean, where the prime minister even came out and uh, was unequivocal that the people who comprised the convoy uh, were, you know, uh, abusive. They had Nazi symbols, uh, the swastika flag. I mean, uh, was that in evidence? Because I didn't, I didn't really see that coverage to any s- certain extent. I don't know if that was extrapolated by the media who were just uh, carrying water for the prime minister or running interference for him. How did that all work out in that dynamic? Carrying water, and there's, there's some intricacy to it. When I first arrived on Parliament Hill on the 28th, I saw a woman... Uh, holding one of these big yellow signs of like a man, you know, something she made in the kitchen. And the, um, uh, I went up to her and she had a swastika drink, uh, drawn on this yellow sign. So I went up to her and I said, tell me about your sign. And she said, oh, oh, it's a swastika. And here you can see there's an equal sign and a yellow star. Because Justin Trudeau is doing to Canadians what the mid-century Germans did to my people. And that's where we ended up, because, because I'm an Orthodox Jew, and I know where this leads to. So what's interesting is, if things require context, now we did see the one official 
the, a third Reich flag that we don't still know the, the, the details of it. It seemed to be that it was an op and uh, Trudeau's um, uh, photo- photographer had just happened to be there. What was uh, It was unraveled. And then they also tried a Confederate flag. And you know how the Confederate flag was, an, was some sort of political operation? Just to drive the point home, to really smear the truckers, it wasn't just the Confederate flag. They overlaid a graphic of a truck on top of it. Just so your subconscious would see the, the truckers are all part of the Confederacy. I don't know. It's a foreign country. That is a lack of intellectual curiosity and intellectual abilities of people within our government right now, and it's causing so much chaos. But I think we're, I think we've hit peak stupidity, and I think we're going to get back to more of an enlightened era. I'm hopeful. I just wonder, you know, obviously this is still resonating across the country. It's almost become sort of a dividing line uh, as to where you cast your. Uh, I guess, support for the truckers, the convoy uh, versus a Guinnett. And do you think, I mean, that this was used as a wedge, the prime minister looking to divide people along those lines? You think he was uh, orchestrating that in a Machiavellian way? This is why everybody, this is why a lot of people in the political class get upset with me, because yes, but they were both doing it. As we saw in the POEC testimony, Candace Bergen, when she became the leader, the interim leader, her and Trudeau were sharing emails that are entered in evidence saying that we need to put an end to the convoy. And do you know why? Very simple. Justin Trudeau required Jerry Butts to raise $40 million over four years to get him elected. We raised $23 million cumulatively in three weeks. Jerry Butts was smart enough to know this is the official opposition. And they had to shut it down. Both parties needed to do it. And they're both culpable. So, BJ, you had your uh, bank accounts frozen. And uh, you were citing that, you know, as a a consequence, basically, uh, you're shut out from any kind of transactional activity. Uh, You're rendered a non-person at that point, so to speak. (laughs) How how did you find out about that first off? And uh, did you have any recourse with Bitcoin or alternatives? I explained that in my book, actually, that uh, when everything just went crazy and the police started invading and the lawyers called me, begging me to leave the, the hotel. And by the way, I had broken my ankle during the convoy. I'm stuck in a wheelchair. They, they convinced me, you have to leave because the authoritarian dictator Trudeau is going to bust down the hotel doors. So I did. And I went to see a friend of mine who lives in the Ottawa area. And I arrived there and I said, I got to get on the phone, call the lawyers, all that sort of stuff. Thank you for taking me in. Let me order you some Uber Eats. You know, the least I can do. And so I placed an order and I went to uh, process the transaction and boom, what happened? Denied. Did it three times and I thought, uh oh. Went over to my computer, opened my corporate bank account. And when I logged in, what did I see? It was a message where all the transaction history had been saying, when you begin to use this account, your transactions will appear here. And then my other bank, when I tried to log on, it said, this client identification does not exist and is invalid. So luckily, at least for me, I had some solace in, I'm a Bitcoiner, and I had been a Bitcoiner for many, many years. Now, I didn't need to use it, but worst case scenario, 
I could use it. And that's, that, by the way, of the $23 million we raised, most of it is sitting in escrow pending a half a billion dollar lawfare suit that is being levied against us by people tied to the Liberal Party. But the one money that they couldn't get that we distributed to 100 plus truckers was over $800,000 in Bitcoin. So I at least had that insurance policy. And this became, in the Bitcoin space, that hyperbolic scenario that Bitcoiners always talk about, that you think it's a little crazy. Like when the government gets tyrannical, at least you'll be able to have some purchasing power. Nobody thought that sort of tyranny would actually start in Canada. And this became a significant moment in Bitcoin history, and we'll be realizing that uh, a generation into the future. By the way, uh, because of you know what you had endured here and you saw playing out in real time, you know, having your bank accounts frozen and so on, so as a libertarian, did you ever think of quitting the country as a consequence? You know, it's funny. You go back and forth on these issues. It's like my, my friends who say, oh, leave the city uh, and move out to the country. And there's a part of me, the defiant part that was involved in the convoy that says, no, I'm not giving them my city. And I was giving them my countries. No, we're going to sit and we're going to fight and we're going to make sure we get back to some sort of centrist, reasonable position in society where we can all talk to each other. And I'm happy to report that there has been a significant change since the fourth quarter of 2023. More and more people on the liberal side, even some on the progressive side, that have realized, you know what, we've got to start talking to each other again. We can't live in these silos where we just demonize each other. So uh, I think we're going to get beyond that. But uh, no, I was never going to uh, abandon my principles, my heritage. As according to our prime minister, Canada does not have a, a, a national identity. No, it does. Like I said on Jordan Peterson's podcast, Canada's identity is peace, love, unity, and freedom. Well, when you say honking for freedom, the trucker convoy that gave us hope, that's the title of your book. How did it give us hope then? Be explicit. You had to be there. It was, it was like Woodstock on Parliament Hill. It was the opposite of some of the smear merchants in the legacy and alternative media. We had uh, some, guy, uh, some guy brought a hot tub. They built three saunas, they built a soup kitchen, they were feeding the homeless, the Sikh community. One of the guys had a chain of restaurants, and he bought all sorts of containers and a bunch of barbecues, and there was a whole team of them barbecuing food and making samosas and handing them out to people. You could be in Ottawa during the entire Freedom Convoy and never have to go out to eat because breakfast, lunch, and dinner was covered by the convoy. And many of the truckers, you know, they're used to time on the road. They're used to keeping themselves busy. So you know what they're doing? They're shoveling the snow. They're cleaning up the garbage. Ottawa never looked so good. And that's why the crime statistics plummeted while we were there. And all very, very embarrassing to the local political class on their city council. Yeah, you know, BJ, when you likened it to Woodstock, I'm thinking there were some farmers in upstate New York who weren't too happy uh, about Yasger's farm being used for three days of love, peace, music, and debauchery. And, uh, you know, they complained about it too. So, I mean, is there a point where you might see the other side that it was disruptive to their lives and maybe all wasn't sweetness and light in that regard? Well, I think any time you have a protest, it's going to inconvenience some people. That's unfortunately just the, the nature of life. 
look, there are protests going on uh, all over the country where people, you know, utter things like gas the Jews. I'm not terribly happy with those either. But in the case of our protest, we ensured, and I have all the pictures to show it, we ensured every street minus Wellington, that was the only street that was packed, because we parked where the Ottawa police told us where to park. And every other side street had one lane empty. We had a command center, mostly ex-military and ex-police officers, that were liaising with the police and emergency services to ensure that no emergency vehicles were disrupted. And I even have pictures of me driving back into Ottawa three times on video showing that there are empty lanes all over the place. So once again, it's just narrative and theater. It's not accurate of what is going on the ground. And it's unfortunate because the media is important. It is so vital that the media is non-biased and tries to tell the truth. But I think because of economic pressures, the media, the way it is, doesn't know where to go. And they've, they've bought into this selling themselves out for a narrative. And for me as an entrepreneur, it's so frustrating because the legacy media could make so much money if it adopted itself for the modern digital age, but they refuse to change. And instead of telling people the truth, they box themselves into a corner where they're dependent on billions of dollars from our government just to exist. We were talking to our lawyer friend, Joe Newberger, and uh, he was kind of bewildered why there was so little media coverage about the Coots Four and their ongoing trials and tribulations. I mean, they're going to have a day in court in May. I mean, that's two years and three months removed from the actual uh, Coots crossing in Alberta, whatever transpired there as they're charged. And even with the cases of Tamara Litch, uh, Pat King, you know, two of the principals and I guess the colleagues, you avoided criminal charges or any charges in this regard because uh, you got out of Dodge before the real uh, heavy weight came down on these other individuals. What's the latest, though, on uh, the Coots for? And finally, you know, uh, your thoughts on how justice has kind of ground slowly with Tamara Litch and Pat King. Well, there's some asterisks in everything that you just said, and I talk about this online on my live stream. Uh, Tamara Leach went up to the police and asked to be arrested. So there's a lot more going on there than we see. And Pat King, uh, from my perspective, had nothing involved, nothing, no involvement in the convoy. And it went on RT and we released a press release to explain that to everybody. But the legacy media wants to use certain figures to hang around our neck so they can reinforce an artificial narrative. But on to the Coots 4. Those poor guys have been sitting there for two years without, any, without going to bail. They're, they're, they're in remand. This is to the degree of when people say Canada has political prisoners. I don't know if they are or not, but it sure as hell smells like it, and it's embarrassing. John, I've lived in Latin America for many, many years, and there are friends of mine who are aware they're watching the convoy, they're watching everything around it, and they know about the coup. And you know what they do? They laugh at us now. They laugh at Canada. When you talk about human rights, yeah, you know, in our country, we don't keep people in jail for two years without going to bail like Canada does. We've become the toilet paper roll for the entire world because of the people who are so incompetent. And And by the way, uh, also why I get get upset at me, I'm not letting the conservatives get off hook either. Because Jason Kenney was the premier in office when those guys were arrested. Uh, Danielle Smith is in office right now. They could very easily turn this into a PR nightmare for the prime minister if they talked about this every day. But they don't. 
because much like during the convoy, they were conspiring with one another on how to end the convoy. And right now what they're doing is conspiring with each other to make sure nobody knows about it. And that includes online right-wing alternative media that doesn't talk about it either. So it's not only legacy media that has problems. Now certain organizations in alternative media are equally unreliable. We'll end on that note. Uh, B.J. Dicker, that's a lot to unpack. Again, I appreciate you joining us, having been there right there in the dynamic of the Freedom Convoy almost two years ago in February of 2022, and now the book Honking for Freedom, the trucker convoy that gave us hope. Really appreciate your time. All the best. Anytime, John. Thank you. You got it. So what does this all mean going forward? Let's find out from our legal expert, Joe Newberger, joining us on the line with Newberger and Partners Criminal Lawyers. Joseph, good afternoon. John, lovely to be on your show. Always a pleasure. But the question is, I mean, okay, so we get this federal ruling. And uh, again, uh, Justice Mosley says, uh, I've concluded that the decision to issue the proclamation of the Emergencies Act does not bear the hallmarks of reasonableness, justification, (laughs) transparency, and intelligibility, and was not justified. In other words, the government erred in doing this. But Justice Rulo, who had sort of uh, gone through this whole chapter and verse previously, said otherwise. So where does that leave us, Joe? So I think it's a good day uh, for us defining the use of the Emergencies Act and for understanding how we go about dealing with unruly assembly uh, in Canada. And this use of the Emergency Act, and and even just previous to that, the seizure of accounts of people who were uh, providing um, donations and of the operators was also really illegal. So the judge had a very reasoned approach to this and said, that the failure of the government to use uh, laws that were in place at the time to deal with this was not a justification for them to then use an extraordinary measure under the Emergencies Act. There are plenty of laws on the books for the criminal code that is across Canada for them to have dealt with this, and they failed to do it. And there is a complete disconnect between the federal government, provincial government, and local policing agencies. It was a massive failure of coordination and communication that resulted in everybody just sitting around with their hands in their pockets, not knowing what to do. And then the federal government said, we're just going to use the Emergencies Act, which was significant overreach. So I think this is a very good decision. It really gives us some guidance now. You said significant overreach, but earlier you said uh, this was illegal. Strictly speaking, was it illegal? Well, yes, this was illegal, but I was also talking about just prior to the uh, evocation of the Emergencies Act, they went after bank accounts. I don't know if you remember it, but the listeners might remember. They went after the bank accounts of people who were participating, organizing this event, and people who were donating. So they were sending out information to banks and orders to seize assets, their, their actual bank accounts, without any prior judicial authorization. And that happened. Can we say, uh, I want to be very specific on the word illegal when you use that. Uh, so is that the finding here that what the government did was illegal? Yeah, it's unconstitutional. They acted outside of their powers. It's illegal. You okay. can't do that. It was it was found unconstitutional. Now, they're going to appeal this. Eventually, it'll go to the Supreme Court of Canada. I'm, I'm almost certain of that. And we'll see what the Supreme Court of Canada will say. But I, I expect that they will uphold this because 
the government failed to use the powers that are on the books now. It was just absolutely ridiculous. So where might that take us then? If you're uh, speculating correctly that the Supremes would find the same as the federal court did yesterday, uh, where might that place things here in a broader context, you know, in the Canadian body politic? I just think you have to be judicious when you want to use such an extraordinary measure. That's all. So, you know, I think it's instructive to any government that is in power now and comes into power. And if you're dealing with protests where you have unlawful assembly, blocking public infrastructure, causing a nuisance or other mischief behavior to the public, you can arrest them under the criminal code. That's what you can do. You can you can do that. And the police have to act. If the police fail to act, you order them or fire them. Uh, and then if you have to, you, you have the RCMP involved. You know, the police agencies are part of the protection of our communities. And you have to determine how you're going to deal with these types of protests. Part of that is using the powers that's available under the criminal code for aspects of the protests, which are now in breach of our laws and which are impeding access to vital infrastructure. So if you're blocking a bridge for uh, more than a few hours so that we don't have transportation of vital goods and services across the borders where we need it for the economy, you can arrest those people because they are blocking infrastructure. There's a number of offenses. And the government now has a guideline, in my opinion, how to go about this without invoking an extraordinary measure like the Emergencies Act. Again, Joseph Newberger is with us with Newberger and Partners Criminal Lawyers and our legal expert on this matter of the ruling that came down from the federal court yesterday saying that the Emergencies Act was illegal. Uh, a charter violation and inappropriately applied. But that contrasts again. I get back to the commissioner of the public inquiry that took place previously, Paul Rouleau. Uh, he found otherwise. How can there be such a disconnect, Joe? You know, it's uh, it's just part of a democracy. You know, judges will disagree. You can you know go to a number of different jurists and they'll they'll arrive at a different decision. So you could go to Supreme Court of Canada. You can have a five to four decision, five in favor, five not. So you'll have dissenting opinions. But I think in this case, this is a correct ruling. Again, I just don't understand why there was not um, powers used under the criminal code to arrest for mischief. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, that there were aspects of the protest that were not problematic. There were blocking infrastructure. If there was ongoing honking that was disturbing people when they're sleeping and working, these are things that have to be dealt with. But there are criminal laws on the books for this. Why was this not invoked? That's the issue. Mm. So the, the commission that looked into it, I think, looked into it more superficially and maybe more in favor of, of the government. And I think this judge took a more objective view from a civil liberty standpoint. And I think his decision is correct. There are instances where things can get out of hand and you need to invoke the Emergencies Act. But thank God in Canadian history, we've needed that so rarely. Well, that's effectively what the federal judge said yesterday. You know, it wasn't proportional. I'm kind of curious. There's a, a story as well for the Coots 4. This was in Alberta, you know, the crossing in the border where uh, it was somewhat testy, but I think it was resolved even before the Emergencies Act was declared. But the Coots 4, these are four individuals who've been considered to be the principals there. Uh, what's the update on that? Because uh, nobody's heard anything. Are they still in jail being held in jail? Yeah, so it's odd. There's not a lot of reporting on it. So I think they're they're on bail. It was supposed to be uh, set for trial now to commence. And the lawyers have brought a number of pretrial applications. I think there's a couple of factors. One, they want to change a venue, which was brought, should have been brought, you know, if it's Ontario, would have been brought well prior to the commencement of trial. 
um, but they want to change uh, from the current location to another jurisdiction so that they can get a fair jury panel. So I think that's a legitimate application. If that is granted, that will certainly delay the trial because they have to set up in a new venue. Also, it looks like there was uh, additional packages of disclosure that was received by the defense lawyers um, last Friday. So if that's the case, that would necessitate an adjournment as well. Um, there was a large cache of, I think, weapons and other things seized. But I do believe these are on, these individuals are on bail. But there's very scant reporting on this, which is really quite surprising given the seriousness of these allegations. Well, yeah, it charges of conspiracy to commit murder leveled, levied against them. Uh, that was one such. I remember that fairly well. Uh, yeah, they were supposed to, you know, conspiracy to commit RCMP, kill RCMP officers. Right. Well, okay, uh, and so uh, you're saying they're on bail, but uh, haven't... Well, no, no, let, let me see if I get this right. The coots for and denial of bail in Canada. So I think they were up recently for a review of their bail, and they may in fact be still in custody. I, I, there's so... I, there's literally very little reporting on this. Well, why is that? I mean, this is an important... It's almost a landmark development in this country when it comes to public protest. Now I get, you know, if they can make the murder charge or conspiracy to commit uh, stick, that's kind of taking it above and beyond protest for sure. But uh, this is an important development. Why, you know, why is nobody digging into this and exposing what's going on? You know, I, I got to say this, your program and, and global 640 are very interested in important criminal law and civil liberties issues. But if you look across legacy media, how much actual reporting and good reporting is going on about important cases across the country? Very little. You take, you know, I'm not just saying this because I love your show, but you do take great interest in these issues. We have seen a weighing uh, in our, our reporting and media over the years where you see crime reporters as, as an occupation going by the wayside. We don't have proper reporting anymore on what's going on in our courts and our, our public are not being properly informed. So I had to dig here for some weird website where it looks like the four men have been in custody for over 600 days. Their bail was denied. There was a recent uh, bail review application, which is similarly denied. And that's as recent as I think of, uh, of October of 2023. So they're still in custody. But I think this is a factor of um, our lack of good media coverage in Canada. And if you were to ask me, Joe, how do you feel about the independence of our media? I'd say I'm not that happy about it. I think a lot of it is tied too tightly to the ideology of our government or whoever's in power. Did I just uh, upset you? No, no, I was listening with rap fascination because I'm totally uh, in agreement with that. And I, I guess that accounts for the lack of accountability. And I'm looking as well, a trial date for the Coots for has now been set for May of 2024. May. Yeah. I mean, that's over two years since these serious charges or indictments. So I don't know what to say to that. And because it's flowed under the radar, out of sight, out of mind, uh, I'm told these guys as well have uh, refused a plea deal. So, right. you know, they want to have their day in court and get it said. But if nobody's covering it, <laughs> you know, it may not. They're, uh, whatever their martyrdom might involve ain't going to mean a lick of difference if nobody cares. 100% correct. I, I just, we need, we, you know, I remember the days where we had dedicated crime reporters. We had a lot of good objective reporting. A lot of issues were out there. That has died over the years. There's not enough investment in independent media. And I think it's a problem uh, when we want to hold government accountable. You know, uh, I, I, 
you know, there are other sort of, you know, there's like rebel news where you see he gets arrested if he's trying to try to ask a question of Christine Freeland. Like we've got a problem in this country, as far as I'm concerned, about allowing media to do what they should be doing, which is inform the public and report objectively. And of course, some of it's going to be opinion based. But if you don't like it, that's something you don't have to listen to. But we are not protecting our media in this country the way we should be and encouraging objective reporting. Mm. And I'm reading bails being denied to the Coots for on tertiary grounds, that is, uh, to maintain confidence in the administration of justice. I mean, that's what all I'm saying is what they're saying is the case is so overwhelming mm. that if you were to release them, it would mean that the public would have no confidence in the justice system. Yeah. OK, if the public knew about it, <laughs> Joe, we'll leave on that note. I mean, it, it is to laugh. It's almost comical if it weren't so pathetic or tragic. But I appreciate you putting it into context for us this afternoon. And for the other matter, too, on the federal ruling from yesterday. Thanks so much for your time, as always. John, always a pleasure. Take care and have a great show. Thank you. Joe Newberger with Newberger and Partners Criminal Lawyers. Host, by the way, of the podcast, Not On Record. Listen to The John Oakley Show live each weekday afternoon from 3 until 6. If you live in the Toronto area, just turn that AM dial to 640 and listen anywhere on Earth 24 hours a day by going to 640toronto.com. Follow on Twitter at AM640Oakley. You've been listening to A Curious Cast. New podcasts and shows are debuting all the time. So check back often to see what's new in the Curious Cast Library.